Connects talks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This life science-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. Hello and welcome to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. I'm Aisha Rashid, Senior Life Science Journalist at xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Sydney Perlmutter, Sarah Hand, and Vera Kovacevic. And this week, we also have a very special guest on our show. We are very happy to have with us today, Dr. Monique Gary or Dr. Mo, who is a breast surgical oncologist and is the medical director of the Grandview Health Pen Cancer Network Cancer Program in Sellersville, Pennsylvania, where she also serves as director of the breast program. As a physician, researcher, advocate, and expert on cancer and healthcare disparities, she is passionate about developing integrative, holistic, and innovative approaches to cancer treatment, prevention, and survivorship, both in the region and throughout the world. Dr. Mo also serves on the board of several community organizations. Nationally, she serves on the board of directors for the American Society of Breast Surgeons, and Dr. Mo was also recognized as a leading physicians of the world and top breast surgeon in Pennsylvania for 2017, 2018, and 2019. To speak more about disparities in breast cancer treatment and care, advancements in screening and prevention, strengthening relationships and communication between the patient and physician communities, let's turn to Dr. Mo. Dr. Mo, thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's so exciting to chat with you all today. Likewise. So I'd like to begin at the beginning. And uh, I'd like to know what motivated you to pursue work as a breast surgical oncologist and what that journey was like um, from the inception, from the idea through to your training and then becoming um, the very first African-American female breast surgical oncologist in the state. Oh boy. So I like to to say um, in its simplest form that cancer chose me. I come from a, a family of nurses. My mother was a nurse. She worked nights at a nursing home. My grandmother uh, was a, a nurse in an inpatient psychiatric unit. And so I grew up around stethoscopes and around crisp white uniforms and blood pressure cuffs. And, and coming from a family of healers, I knew that I wanted to go into healthcare, um, but I didn't know that cancer would, uh, would choose me until my mother passed away of ovarian cancer at 29 years old. I'm sorry um, to hear that. Thank you. She she left behind two girls, you know, seven and ten years old, and wow. I don't imagine that that she would have ever thought, you know, that her life would have ended the way that it did. But I, I guess that it was necessary in order for us to to see and become what we needed to see and become. And so my grandmother uh, then raised us, and she got diagnosed with breast cancer not once but twice. And each wow. time, some doctor she I remember her, you know, as a young kid going her to her doctor's offices, and the doctor saying, "Well, ma'am, maybe you have this six months." 12 months could be a year, who knows how long it is. And each time she would advocate for herself and she would say, no, I, I have two young granddaughters I have to raise. I don't have time to die. I think one of them said she's going to cure cancer. She's going to be a doctor. <laughs> and she, she lived another 25 years. You know, wow. from from this six to twelve month diagnosis, getting diagnosed with breast cancer twice over those twenty five years, and so I have seen how cancer ravages not only the body, 
not only the, the mind, the peace of mind, the finances, the family, the connectivity, until a person doesn't even feel like themselves in their own body anymore. And so for me, you know, this is personal, the, the work that I do. I get a chance to, to give young girls back their mothers and give families a little bit more time together. And, uh, and so it's, 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 so, it's about so much more than just a tumor. As far as the journey, um, mm. the journey, the journey into medicine was very challenging because there are attempts to train you to do the best job possible in, in a limited amount of time. But I think that training also desensitizes you. And the goal is to get you to focus on the disease process and doing the thing that needs to be done, fixing the thing that needs to be fixed, whether it's in trauma and in the emergency department, you know, finding the bleed and stopping the bullet and doing the best that you can to help restore health but it also teaches you not to see that person as a person in that moment. Mm. Uh, the pendulum is swinging back the other way, I think, to emphasize humanism in medicine and train empathetic scholars. And we've evolved to know and recognize that the best care doesn't come from not seeing an individual, but by recognizing that each patient is unique and that our medicine, even though it's algorithmic and prescriptive, our medicine needs to be unique and personalized as well. Wow, that's uh, definitely quite the journey. And so thank you very much uh, for sharing your story, uh, Dr. Mo. Now, uh, you know, since cancer chose you, as you as you aptly said, and so you've um, been very close to to seeing that at a personal level and now as a professional in in the in the field. So when a patient gets a breast cancer diagnosis, um, of course, it can be very overwhelming. And in a lot of cases, people don't fully understand their diagnosis until perhaps they read a bit more about it, dare I say, on the internet or um, or are informed by their oncologist. Uh, so what are some ways do you think that patients can really advocate for themselves? And you did mention that your grandmother was one of them. Um, and so how can they collaborate really with their doctor to get the correct information? You know, it, it's tough because once you get that cancer diagnosis, it's like a bomb going off. You ever watch those war movies and once the bomb goes off, nobody hears anything and people are talking all around that person and all they see are the mouths moving. And when you hear the word cancer, it's very much like that. You, you hear people, you see people talking and folks are taking notes and they're showing you pictures of what's going on, but mm -hmm. you're not really getting it. And so one of the most important ways you can start to advocate for yourself is to bring an advocate with you. It's to make sure you've got somebody who can ask questions, who can take notes, who can repeat back what is said. Uh, and, you know, I encourage my patients to do the research. Everybody says, oh, Dr. Google, Dr. Google. Information mm -hmm. is a, it's a powerful thing. Um, but you've got to know how to interpret that information. So I'd rather a patient do all the research that they think they want to do and then come to me with those questions. And let's go through and let's talk about what's real and what's true and what isn't. Um, but one of the most important lessons, I think, for me throughout this journey of, of, of cancer care is that I start off with listening. I always start my encounter by saying, what do you understand about what's happening here and about your diagnosis? And then I just pause. Mm -hmm. And I let that patient, I let that family explain what they think is going on. How, what do they understand about what they need? Sometimes the answer is absolutely nothing. And it, it, you know, and that's okay. It sets the tone for engagement because now they're thinking, what do I understand? What don't I know? What would I like to know? But it helps that patient feel seen. It helps them feel valued in the discussion and partnered with. So that's the most important thing. Um, the other ways I think to advocate 
is asking to see evidence-based guidelines. You might not understand them, you know, but we're not just pulling a treatment plan out of thin air. And patients sometimes will think, okay, well, the doctor told me I need this, this, and this. But you can say, hey, doc, where's the, where's the proof? Or how do I know that that's the, the, the thing, the right thing that I need? And so that doctor should pull that up and walk you through that because they know you're not going to understand it. It is an algorithm that looks like one of those road maps that people don't even read anymore. And all the roads are pointing in different directions. But, you know, when when we go over that, I think it helps to uh, reinforce uh, the trust and it helps patients to understand that there is a treatment that's best practices and that's recommended. Um, and one of the last things I think is I, I always tell patients, don't be afraid to get a second opinion. It's mm -hmm. your life. It's your body. It's your family. It's your future. And it's okay to say, you know what, I'd like to talk to one other person before I make some decisions or, hey, doc, if you had what I have, who would you go to? You know, is there somebody that, mm -hmm. that you would go see and that you would talk to? And many times we can facilitate that appointment or the best question is, well, what would you do if your most valued loved one were sitting in this seat right here? Or if you were in that seat, what would you do? And it immediately reminds that clinician to consider the humanity of the person in front of you and that there's a whole person and an ecosystem attached to that chart and to that diagnosis. And it pulls it out of the abstract sort of clinical, you need a surgery and you need chemo and you need radiation to, you know what, if you were my loved one, this is what I'd be thinking. Here's what I'd be doing. Here's what we're going to formulate as a plan and we're going to partner with you. So switching gears just a little bit, uh, Dr. Mo, it's certainly no secret that marginalized communities can face significant disparities in breast cancer screening, treatment, care, and outcomes. Um, so could you talk a little bit about how breast cancer um, affects racial and ethnic populations differently? Sure. Uh, you know, people like to say cancer doesn't discriminate. And, and it's true that while the disease doesn't, there are racial, there's geographic, there are socioeconomic differences in cancer incidence, in treatment, in outcomes. And rather than say that those differences aren't real or just attribute them to, to one thing, I think we have to look at all of them in their, their totality, you know, and the statistics surrounding who is affected worse by uh, breast cancer and who lives uh, the shortest amount of time and who has the worst outcomes, you know, that those statistics are rattled off sometimes when you go to conferences, it's like bad poetry and you hear, you know, people say, oh, black women are 41% more likely to die of breast cancer than white women. They're three times more likely to be diagnosed at a younger age and a later stage. Uh, they're less likely to be offered a clinical trial, less likely to complete the standard of care therapies. And so there's a lot of work, I think, that we have to do from every stakeholder, not just the clinician, the physician, the researcher, the patient. We all have to work together to make sure that that patient gets offered every opportunity to live. And those differences are real and they need to be uh, addressed rather than just sort of swept aside. So with those, those disparities in mind, then what are some of the challenges and issues that um, are surrounding breast cancer awareness in the black community? In, in the black community, especially, and, and I'm coming to learn uh, practicing in rural Pennsylvania that people are people no matter where they are, uh, but secrecy, secrecy is a big one. You know, how, how many times do you hear the word strong and black woman put together in a sentence, right? 
if we did a family feud, you'd hear, you know, 100 people <laughs> said, you know, blank before black woman. What, what would be the number one answer? It'd probably be strong. And what that means to us and how that gets played out in our lives is that we have to be impenetrable. And it gets internalized that all we are is we're fine, no matter what. And although we might be, it robs us of the opportunity to be vulnerable, to express what we need, to share our disease, right? We don't share our problems and our health, and we don't discuss our family history. And so I think that that's one key thing that um, really pre prevents us from understanding more about how cancer impacts our communities. Um, health literacy is a challenge. There's a lot of myths about why cancer happens in our communities and what we should do about it and what the intent is of the doctors, right? There's medical mistrust that's mm -hmm. earned. When you look at, you know, the very first doctors that that black people were introduced to in this country were on slave ships to keep them alive long enough to sell at a block. That's your first experience with a doctor. You might not pass down good things about healthcare throughout the generations. You know, I, I remember my grandfather grew up in South Carolina and he would talk about the colored hospital was a place where you went to die because they never had enough money, enough resources or the right doctors that you needed. And so that's what we heard and what we learned growing up. And so I think that there's all of these things really create a, a perfect storm, but issues with comorbidities, diabetes, hypertension, issues of access, you know, whether or not we're getting the right screening. And we know that there's some issues of racism and bias that uh, make um, the standard of care less likely to even be prescribed. Black and brown women are not prescribed 3D mammograms, despite having up to 30% more dense breast tissue. And so it's not all the patient and the community's fault. I think, you know, when we look at where we can intervene, there's a lot of different touch points for where we can create interventions. But those are some of the challenges. Hmm. So we started to touch on this a little bit, but what are some of the steps that should be taken to end these, dis these disparities in breast cancer screening, treatment, care, and outcomes? Um, I, I think you got to tackle the three R's, right? You got to tackle the resources. So, so not all programs and services are equal. You know, when we look at when how people navigate through their cancer journey, more patients would benefit from navigation, from psychosocial support, from integrative care, in addition to the standard of care. And those are only available at certain places and certain communities and with, you know, certain, certain uh, resources and pocketbooks. Uh, lack of inclusive research. That's the second R. We need to make sure that the research we're doing represents the population who's affected, ideally in proportion to how they're affected and how often they're dying. But we see 3% of black women included in breast cancer clinical trials. So we have a lot of work to do, I think, to, to make that number um, uh, more robust, but to make that research meaningful. And then tackling racism and bias in healthcare. Um, you know, it's, it's something that as, as a doctor, you don't like to talk about. It's kind of airing your, as I say, your dirty laundry, right? But it's, it's real. And I think wherever we go, there we are. And we all have inherent and in, implicit biases and blind spots that we don't know. But we can help to undo and to train ourselves to see each person as unique rather than to say things like, I don't see color or I don't see that person, we can recognize the uniqueness of that person and the fullness of their experience and what they believe and partner with them. And it creates for a better encounter where we know that more often that person's likely to be offered all the things you would offer your family member. You now will offer that person in front of you despite how they look, how they worship, who they love, you know, what the color of their skin is. So I think we got some work to do there. Uh, Dr. Mo, I wanted to ask you, um, 
you know, as a person who has a family member who um, went through breast cancer, um, what are some advancements in breast cancer screening and prevention that you have seen recently that can kind of give us hope? I love this question. And I love it because we don't talk enough about the hope and about the survival and about the, you know, what's, what technologies are available on the horizon. And, you know, let's start with detection, right? Because it starts with screening and the screening modalities are not perfect. Mammograms are literally an x-ray that looks at a breast. And I tell my patients, I'm old, I'm dating myself, but it's like console TVs. Remember those big giant floor model TVs with the static and the bunny ears, right? Like that's what we're doing to look at breasts. And so now we've got the flat screen TVs or the 3D mammos, right? The picture quality is better. But what about for those women who have a lot of snow on their TV screen or a lot of breast density? And so there's some really cool things coming down the pike for screening women who have dense breasts. And that includes things like um, automated and whole breast ultrasound, elastography, which is looking at densities in the breast tissue, especially for women who might be too young for mammograms because their breasts are just too dense um, or they may be afraid of traditional screening. So there are companies like, uh, there's one called Bexa, for example, uh, that looks at elastography or compression of the breast tissues to see. Is this lump a cyst? Is it a fibroadenoma or a benign lump? Or is this something more concerning? And do you need to get you know, pushed up into screening and diagnostic imaging a little bit sooner? Uh, there are things like molecular breast imaging and advanced MRI and PET scans that target specific molecules to look for cancer throughout the body. So once you're diagnosed, can we determine did it spread and can we determine it faster than the traditional tests? Um, but I'm really excited about things like liquid biopsies uh, and, and blood tests, uh, saliva tests. Things are starting to detect not only the circulating tumor cells, so once you have cancer, is it in your bloodstream? But there are some proteins and some other little molecules that might indicate precancerous abnormalities. Are you higher risk based upon those protein signatures? Uh, and there's a, there's a great company uh, called Mamagen that's beginning to look at that. It's a woman-owned, woman-led uh, company with a bunch of scientists who are trying to figure this thing out for, for women especially. Um, genetic testing, um, looking at the genes you were born with, it's become more precise. Now we can even look at like the parts of the gene that might be active. So not even the whole gene, but little pieces of it that might put you at higher risk for cancer, even if you don't have the, let's say the BRCA mutations. And, and all of it really leads to a future of personalized or precision medicine. And so in my mind, that's where health equity really has to be at that forefront, right? We're, we're headed to the moon. We got a moonshot and we need to make sure that people aren't left here on the ground because we can't personalize medicine to a genome that we don't have, right? To, to cells that we haven't evaluated and looked at. And so it's really important to, to get everybody on board and to really work on earning the trust of the community so that we can do this research that's gonna benefit everybody. Cause you know, as they say, a rising tide floats all boats, right? So Dr. Mo, you mentioned um, the importance of uh personalized care, of course, and that's where we're heading. And so how do you think we can um, uh, have Black women especially and other minorities um, be better engaged to encourage their participation in breast cancer clinical trials? Because we know that um, not all tumors are the same, not all individuals are the same. And there's, in the era of genetic and molecular profiling, I think it's become so much more important um, to, to really have that representation, of course, in clinical trials. And so how do you better engage those minorities and particularly Black women? You know, I, I think uh, 
black women and 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 brown women and and those of 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 all marginalized communities are more engaged than ever before they have not only like built the, they've not only pulled up seats but they've built the table and they're inviting us to the table now i was just at uh, san antonio breast cancer symposium and i was a moderator of a day-long symposium full of advocacy groups and research that they had conducted themselves in conjunction with pharma mm. and there were no doctors in the room and they were like well where's all the doctors how come there's no none of the clinicians there and the pharmaceutical companies and the patients had done their own research and they said we want to enroll ourselves in clinical trials wow. and you know it, it's 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 really super impressive um, because they understand one uh, the need to, it's their lives their lives on the line the lives of their children their loved ones their family members and their friends and and two they understand their power like never before it used to be the number one reason black women weren't enrolled in clinical trials was because a doctor didn't ask them to be a part of that trial and so now they're starting to ask and so um you know i've been really proud of the work that i've done with one organization in particular called touch the black breast cancer alliance uh, i'm the medical director of, of that organization and we have started an initiative called when we trial and we've enrolled over 5,000 black women into clinical trial portals so that they can get engaged and see what trials might be right for them. And women are going to the website and they're signing up themselves to be a part of this research. And so I think that we can engage them more by inviting them to the table, by making sure that wherever trials are being designed, that patients and advocates are at that table to say, you know, this is a great trial, but have you considered some of the limitations here? Or have you considered how this might impact the patient experience? as not an afterthought, but it built into the trial design. What are the barriers and how can we address those? So making sure that they have those seats at the table as trials are being designed, I think is a huge way to engage them more. And, and the last way I think to better engage uh, black women, brown women, et cetera, is to educate a generation of, of young doctors right? We have to make sure that they understand the importance of inclusivity in healthcare, not as a class they have to take, not as a, a moral imperative, right? But making sure that they understand why it's important to healthcare outcomes, to population health, to everybody's health and, and well-being. Um, and so the next phase of, of my work in healthcare and in academic medicine is really to try to make sure that there's more doctors like me who see the value in advocacy and who can sit on some of these boards and listen to advocates and patients and be the translator and be the voice of the trusted voice of reason about cancer issues and topics. Um, because I think that that's going to really make sure that we are not only designing great trials, but that we're equipping doctors to offer those trials to the right people and to get the research done so that we can see the benefits for um, for all populations, men, women, black, brown, every race. You know, cancer, it, it needs to be eradicated for everybody. Absolutely. So some very, very wonderful points. And um just uh, in, in conclusion, um, do you have any concluding remarks or what would be your big takeaway that uh, you would want uh, for people to to get from this whole conversation? Well, I think it depends on who's listening, but I think if you're listening and you're a person who's into tech and, and thinking about, you know, that technology is going to be the wave of the future and it's going to save us, tech is only as good as the people who are, are using it and how we're mm -hmm. desi deciding to use it and what it's designed to do. And so I would say that we need to make sure that we are um, looking at things from every angle and that we're seeking to listen 
more than we speak and that we're focusing on really what inclusivity looks like and not being afraid of what that could feel like, not being afraid of being wrong, right? Of maybe using a wrong pronoun or maybe starting with an assumption and, and, and having that assumption be refuted. That's how we grow and it's how we learn in medicine. Um, but I think we, we all have to show up and figure out what is my role if I'm in industry, if I'm in research, if I'm in medicine, if I'm just listening and you know flipping the channels and I found a great podcast, there's a role for you in educating your communities and going home and saying, hey, you know, did you get that mammogram? I know we, you know, we didn't do it during COVID, but are you up to date on all those things? And you need somebody to drive you? You want to pick you up? Want me to sit in the waiting room? Right? Or I heard this podcast about breast cancer. You know, what do you know about this? And can we talk about our family history? Right? There's something for everybody. Mm -hmm. And it's not everybody else's problem. And that's kind of where, where we try to take ourselves off the hook. But, you know, cancer is one of those things we all know somebody who's been affected by it. And so that means there's something for all of us to do to try to make things better. So that, that's my take home is that there's something for everyone. Something for everyone. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Mo, for being on the show today. We truly appreciate your time and your um, absolutely wonderful insights. Thank you. What a joy. This has been so much fun. And uh, I'm just grateful for the, for the opportunity to chat with all of you. Thank you. Thank you once again. Well, that's the end of this episode of the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you, everyone, and see you all next week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X Talks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.